The Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio present Savor 2015, an American craft beer and food experience from Washington, D.C. This salon was from Friday, June 5th. Farm to Bottle, We Grow Beer, presented by Ron Lindenbush, Lagunitas Brewing Company. Hi, everybody. You guys want to get started? Look at you all in your comfy little chairs, couches. Um, great to see you all. I'm Julia Hers with the Brewers Association, the craft beer program director at the BA who hosts Savor. I'm proud to sit in on what is going to be a fascinating um, behind-the-scenes, kind of behind-the-scenes baseball on what's going on with raw materials. And you've got quite a passionate speaker. Before I introduce him, who's going to introduce your other guests, that are also speaking, just want a few housekeeping. We're recording all the salons at Saber. There's 18 of them, these private tastings and the auditorium ones. So if you want to listen to anything, craftbeerradio.com is recording those, and we will rebroadcast those through craftbeer.com. So go ahead and, and geek out and listen to the ones that you weren't able to sit in on. That's important. I um, also want to let you know Spiegelau is in the back. Say hi, Matt. Hello. Spiegelau, you need a glass? They've got it. Um, they're becoming very well known for what they do, I would say. That's for sure. And the Spiegelau tulip is yours to take with you when you leave this evening. So thank you very much. A nod to uh, Spiegelau. Three cheers. Woo woo. Let's give them a little. Excellent. And then Reyes Beverage Group is the main supporter for Saver, makes it possible. Distribution side is key in what goes on in the beer market. So we thank uh, Reyes and Premium for helping us pull off Saver for eight years now. Um, and with that, I'm going to, uh, to kick it off. We've got Farm to Bottle with Ron Lindenbush from um, Lagunitas, who is not just in Petaluma, California, but also in Chicago now. And so they are really leading the way in, in what's going on. So let's just hand it over to Ron. And, and Ron, thank you so much for what you're about to present. Thank you, Julia. Is this thing on? Uh, okay, we're recording. Julia's the boss. Thank you, Julia. Thank you, Julia and the Brewers Association put, for putting on this event along with all the other events that they do. It's really cool to see an, an organization that, that has, from the GABF to CBC to this event to everything else they do, to really just make craft beer matter in the United States. So thanks, Julia, and all your, all your compatriots. Uh, and thanks to you all for drinking it, because if you weren't drinking it, we wouldn't be making it, you know? So, so if you keep drinking it, we'll keep making it. Tonight, I'd, uh, we've... Um, they're drinking. They, they, if, the more you drink, the more they have to grow. All right. So, uh, so our, uh, our topic tonight, you know, I thought I was thinking about what, what would be cool for, for people to hear about that they don't normally hear about, because, you know, a lot of these salons are about... Uh, things that, that people may already know about, but I don't think a lot of people know about the ins and outs of raw material sourcing for the growing craft beer community. And when I talk about raw materials, it's barley and hops. You know, we can grow yeast. We can grow yeast all day long. We've, we've got our culture. We can grow it up. We got plenty of water for now in California. <laughs> That's why we built a brewery in Chicago, because Lake Michigan is full. Cool. That's cool. There's a lot of water there. But, uh, but you know, you look at the four ingredients in beer, and, and when you talk about barley and hops, there's, there's a limited supply, especially with hops, but barley also. With high-quality malting barley, it's just not easy to come by. So there's a few things that have happened in the last decade or so that, that uh, uh, my friends are going to bring to light tonight. But, uh, you know, the hop industry has, has blown up. I mean, I've, we're starting to sell beer in Europe, and Simcoe, Citra, Mosaic, they all want it, and they're all brewing with it. And it's interesting to see uh, a beer culture, like our, our culture in America got down to 47 brewing companies all making light lager, right? Craft brewing came along. We all emulated... British beers, Belgian beers, we all emulated the styles from Europe that, that were flavorful and, and interesting. And that started in the, you know, in the 70s with Fritz Maytag. But uh, you know, to watch the European craft brew scene come on and now emulate the American craft brew scene is pretty crazy. 
And, um, you know, I hate those guys for buying our hops. <laughs> no, I don't. No, I don't, really. But, but they love them. They all want the good hops. So, so we're going to talk tonight a little bit about, about how we've uh, built our relationships with our hop growers and our barley farmers and how important it is for us as a brewery that's growing pretty fast to be able to stay ahead of that curve and make sure we don't run out of the goodies. So we've got, you know, behind me here's a little slideshow. Thanks to Chris Myers for putting this projector thing together. I don't know if you noticed how the high-quality engineering, yeah. <laughs> MacGyver rig. But, uh, but you'll see a lot of, a lot of pictures of, of different things, if, and then we'll have a question and answer. So if you see any pictures that pop out, let us know. Um, you know, the, uh, the, the topic tonight is, uh, is farm to bottle, right? We grow beer. And, and that's what these guys do. They grow beer. They grow hops, they grow barley, and they grow beer. And I'd like to introduce Jim Boyd here from Roy Farms, one of our hop partners in the Yakima Valley, and, uh, and Mark Warona from Brewer Supply Group. And he does a lot of things in the business. Uh, they handle hops and grain and all kinds of things, but they're our partner with RAR Malting, who we've uh, arranged with to buy directly from hop farmers or barley farmers in Alberta, Canada. So the, the Canadian Wheat Board a couple of years ago decommoditized their, their pricing. So the Canadian, I don't know if you know, this might be too geeky, but everything used to go through the Canadian Wheat Board. All the grain that was grown had to be sold through the Canadian Wheat Board at their commoditized pricing level. So a farmer never knew how much money they were going to make at the end of the season. So they've got to decide, am I going to grow canola? Am I going to grow feed barley? Am I going to, you know, they, but a couple of months into the growing season, you've got to decide if you're going to grow feed barley or malting barley. If you've got that crop out there, feed barley, you fertilize it heavier, you, you get a lot more yield per acre, but the quality of it is generally not suitable for brewing. So we need, we need plump kernels. We need barley that's grown to be malted and to be made, for, made to beer. So to have the farmers agree with us, we've got 15 family farms now that Mark's working with, with our malting, that uh, we call it the, uh, the Chinook Arch Model. And uh, we're welcoming other breweries to join in on the model. If they want to get in with these guys, they, they can grow a lot of barley. So we, we want to get everything we need. So we've arranged with them to guarantee them pricing. So two years ago, the first year of our project, we guaranteed them a certain pricing level. If we had bought on the spot market at the end of that harvest, we would have saved a million dollars. A million dollars. I mean, and, and our CFO, Leon Sharon, that put all this together, he said, man, any other company I ever worked for, I would have been fired. And we were like, woohoo, all right, we got the price we needed, we made money, the farmers are buying new tractors, they're putting signs out in their fields that say we grow beer. They're stoked, they're putting our logos on their combines, they invite us up, we do combine races around their, their fields, it's awesome. You know, everybody gets drunk and drives a $500,000 combine just raging around this field, it's pretty cool. But, um, but the, the, those relationships are what what we've always been about with everybody we deal with, if it's our, our retailers, our distributors, our consumers, and now we've been able to forge these relationships with our suppliers, that there really is a relationship there that we both are deeply invested in each other and we care about each other to the point that, that it matters. It's not just a business deal, it's a relationship. And that's what Craft Brew has been built on. I mean, this whole, this whole industry is built on people that believe in relationships. And we're not out to sell a bill of goods. We're not out to sell a box of beer. We're here to create relationships with everybody we deal with. So I hope you guys feel that on the other end. Um, you know, it's, it's special to us, but it's, it's kind of a cool thing. So these guys feel that way with us, and they're our partners, and it's cool. And they come out to do these parties. And they're like, woohoo! let's go party, drink some beer, let's talk about stuff. So, uh, so I'd like to introduce uh, first, I, I mentioned Jim Boyd, Mark Warona. Hops, hops and barley and malt and yeast and, and uh, you know, everything else. Ingredients. They, they, BSG is a great company. We've been working with them a long time. So, uh, so I, you know, I, I, we're going to open it up to questions here, but I figured I'd let these guys talk a little bit about how they deal with us. So, uh, Jim Boyd, you want to take it first? Jim Boyd, the one and only. Uh, again, again, thank you for joining us. Thank you for the warm welcome. Um, 
Again, I'm Jim Boyd. I'm with Roy Farms. We're in Moxie, Washington. We are a diversified family farm of about 6,000 acres. We do apples, blueberries, cherries, and hops. Um, this year we have about 3,200 acres under trellis of hops. Um, that makes us uh, the largest or one of the largest privately owned hop farms in the world. Um, we've been in partnership, a true partnership, with Lagunese for a number of years. And the difference being partnership, or whether you work in the traditional market, would be that uh, conventionally uh, hop growers, they produce their product, they, they, they put them in bales, and they send them off to a merchant. Sorry, Mark. And the merchants figure out what they can do with them later. So in our agreement, what we've done with Lagunitas is we bypass that merchant. We have a direct relationship with, with Lagunitas. And in our long-term arrangement and our agreement, we've given up a large portion of our, uh, our, our profit margin. And they, even, on top of that, pay higher than market value. And the reason we're doing that together is we're taking all of the extra proceeds and we're putting them off to the side to fund a new picking facility. And it's because of our relationship that we can do that without in, impacting our, our, our ability to grow. Very smart thinking on their CFO. Great out-of-the-box ideas. Um, especially with a company like um, Lagunese as they're growing. You know, they're, they've got Petaluma, which is growing still. Lagunese in Chicago has a wonderful big brew house. And they're putting their second brew house in. Uh, getting ready to commission it, and I was there last week, and they're just within days of getting ready to turn it on. Um, when they're done, their capacity will be approximately 1.5 million barrels of beer. And I know what their hopping rate is, which is the amount of hops that they use in their product. Yeah, I moved. Okay. Um, and and with, at 1.5 million barrels, with the, uh, their hopping rate they use, that's approximately 10% of the hops grown in the United States. Now, we're always talking about where the craft market in general is going, and we're hoping for 15, 16, and maybe in a few years, at 20% of, the, uh, of the, the domestic market, they're already consuming 10% of the hops. So they've been proactive, making sure that they have good relationships with growers like ourselves, with the, uh, the Chinook Arch folks in, in malting and barling, and it makes the future look a lot better for craft brewing. Um, the forward thinkers, like Lagunitas, uh, make it very enjoyable for, for the business we're in. Without getting too geeky, I just want to throw something at you real quick. Um, the American hop market growing ability, uh, 20 years ago we had 250 families. Now we're down to 60 hop growers in the world, in the United States. Um, and we've hit our theoretical maximum ability to pick hops in, a, in, a, in, a unique, in, a, in the absolute picking window. So what we need is more infrastructure, and by having arrangements like this, it allows us to build new infrastructure so that they can have high-quality hops picked at the right window. Um, as the world market grows, keep here's again, I don't want to get too geeky, but for every grow every hundred thousand barrels that the market grows, it's going to require an additional 112 acres of hops. So the, the BA put out some numbers uh, not too long ago. They said that all of the infrastructure that's already in place, if no brewer ever spent a dime on stainless steel, there's an a, ability to produce an additional 13 million barrels of beer. And that relates, that equates to about 14,000 acres. So without programs like community, you know, a, a partnership with, uh, with growers, with farmers and breweries, we'll never be able to get there. And I just, again, want to commend you guys for the ways you're doing it. Um, I, I think we're going to have question and answers later. We probably should have started with malt, which is the basis, but I'm going to turn this over to Mark right now. Mark Warona with uh, Brewer Supply. Something you'd like to say? <laughs> I just was going to, uh, he's talking about infrastructure, and um, we've got a, a hop, and I'll talk about the beers we're drinking in a little bit here, but the IPA that you started with, we've been making it with that same recipe since 1995. And we were, as far as I can tell, the first brewery to make IPA a flagship for our brand. And that's, that's served us well as, as everybody kind of got into IPAs. But, you know, the Cascade was the base hop that, that uh, we loved in Liberty Ale. And when Tony and I were talking about making a hoppy beer and talking about hoppy beers that we liked, there were, really weren't that many back then. And Liberty Ale was. I mean, it was that big grapefruity, 
you know, cascade just flavor. And uh, that, that hop was developed by Siegel Ranch, I think, right? Didn't Siegel family develop cascade? Yeah. Yeah. They take credit for it anyway. But, uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah, okay. So Fritz Maytag, when he made Liberty Ale in 1975, he dosed it with a big old dose of Cascade, and we love that flavor. So Cascade's a big part of our IPA, which is the first beer you had, but Centennial is, is also very important in there, and it's a little grassier, it's a little more herbaceous, it's a little higher alpha acid, and Centennial's not as sexy a hop anymore because Citra and Simcoe and Mosaic and Equinox, all these new hops are coming along. So the, the, the acreage of Centennial has not been growing like our IPA has been growing. So we invested with Roy Farms to put 100 acres of Centennial in that I think we've got for perpetuity, right? 10 years anyway, something like that? <laughs> Till we don't like each other anymore? But that's the type of partnership. You know, we, we were able to get a bank loan to invest in building out that infrastructure and put in 100 acres of Centennial that will will take us for the next several years. So, uh, so those kinds of things are just kind of cool. You think about, I mean, you all have partnerships, you all have business deals, you all have business partners. When you think about getting together with them and just having a beer and talking about how we can work together to help each other out, that's where the magic comes from. And, and the same thing happens with our brewer supply group partnership. You know, when, when the farmers all agreed to go direct with us, that, that was great, but those farmers don't have malting facilities and they, they don't have a way to process that grain. They'll grow it for us, but they don't have a way to process it for us. So that's where Mark and his gang came in with Rar Malting and, and uh, set us up with all these farmers to have just a, a really cool thing going on. So Mark Warona, BSG, I'm gonna hand it over. Thanks for coming. Glad to be here, always. Two of my favorite guys in the, in the beer industry. So honestly, actually, I got to say, Jim was a huge inspiration in, in my career. Uh, about 10 years ago, I left. I was working at a brewery in Pennsylvania called Stouts. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of it. But I was running that place for around 10 years. And then, well, you know, <laughs> it, was, it was my favorite beer. I was, I was my toughest critic. So it's, oh. But uh, anyway, so Jim, I was looking for a little bit of change. And Jim and I were partners at that point. Uh, he, was, he was selling hops, and I was certainly using hops, and sure enough, we, we talked about this opportunity that we had. So he and I were, ended up teaming up, selling hops for a company out of Yakima and uh, running around the country and having a lot of success with it. And he may not look like it, but this guy can celebrate uh, with a pint or two also. At the end of the night, we celebrate our success. But, it, you know, after that, uh, again, my, my, where I am now with BSG, um, Jim, again, was helpful with that. So I just want to thank you for that, Jim. He put a good word in for me, and it worked out well. And, of course, Ron. You're an inspiration too, my friend. <laughs> this is, I'm kind of a, a sentimental guy, so I just want to say, Ron I, what Ron, I don't know if everybody knows what Ron does at Lagunitas, but he's basically really important in developing the culture of, of that is Lagunitas, and he's maintained it and grown this thing, and it's such a wonderful, I, I live in Sonoma, California, not far from, from Ron and for, far from the brewery, and to go there to the brewery is absolutely, it's magical. You sit in the back beer garden, you see this group of well, customers, of course, having a great time, but also employees working together like a team. And on Friday, you go there and they're having lunch together, and it's just, it's fabulous. And it really inspired me to help work within my company try to create and maintain a culture, too. And Jake here works with, with me at BSG in, in Minnesota, and I think he agrees that we, we have a very, a culture, a family, and it's, very, uh, it's a very strong human aspect about what we do. And so, I, you know, you're a big inspiration for that. And, of course, Jim, thank you. So... <laughs> so anyway, but I, I want to say, but anyway, so yeah, like, let's talk about barley, we'll talk about mall. We'll, I got a lot of good stuff uh, still, but anyway, so yeah, BSG is a, a company, we started about 10 years ago, uh, but we're actually owned by a company called RAR Malting Company, which is a big malting company in Minnesota. They started in, I think, about 1847, so fifth generation now, they've been going strong, and uh, it's a really, they, about 10 years ago, they recognized uh, a, a, an opportunity or need to diversify. They had three customers, basically, Bud, Miller, and Coors. And I think they saw that the, the craft brewers were, were growing, and they decided to put together this, this uh, organization that would sell to craft breweries, and that's where we came in. And then soon, not long after that, uh, I came, I, well, I joined up pretty much about a year after that, and then uh, not long after that, we started doing business with Lagunitas, 
And um, sooner or later, uh, this uh, Leon came on board, Leon Sharon, the CFO, and that's when we started this, um, this arrangement with the growers up in Alberta. We've always done, we have a malt house up in Alberta, and we've been working, uh, working that place for quite a long time. But um, we, when we started working with, with Lagunitas, they really impressed upon us the, the need to get to know the farmers and how important that was to them. And it kind of, it's a little bit different. Uh, the farmers at the time were always just growing, growing malt, growing malting barley, and then sending it off to the malt house, and it would disappear to who knows where. And they never really knew where it ended up. And uh, with, when Lagunitas came, came, came forward, they said, look, we, we really want to put a face to this. We appreciate what you're doing. We want to support it. Uh, and like Ron said before, they, we, they came up with this program. We call it the Chinook Arch. And I can kind of had a pretty interesting story how that came about. But, but the nature of the program, like Ron said, is to basically just decommodify it. The ups and downs, you know, it's barley being tied to the corn price and all these uh, weathering lows in price and families struggling and then high prices that make no sense sometimes. So they really thought that if they could stabilize the price and the farmers would agree to a price that they needed to grow, and Lagunitas agreed to a price that they needed to, uh, to, to make beer, uh, it would be a happy arrangement. So we would, and we would just facilitate that, that whole process. And so what we did was we, we got together a core group from Lagunitas. I think it was Jeremy, the brewmaster, and, uh, and Carissa was there. Tony wasn't there the first year, I don't think, but Leon was along. We, all, we took them to, uh, at, the, at the time, it was seven of our best growers because we were really focusing on quality. Lagunitas is all about the quality. They want absolute best they can do, and they're willing to support that. And so we, we went to uh, some, of, some of our best farmers. It was a really fun week. We visited farms that were 10,000 acres. Some were much smaller, but they're all family-owned farms. Uh, and, and ultimately, after having discussions with all of them, six of them decided to be on board with it. The one, there was one farm that decided they didn't want to be on board. It was kind of interesting. It had, a, it had an interesting reason for doing it, I guess. I'm not sure if I fully understand it, but what they, it was a colony of about 130 people. Uh, it's called Hutterites. It's a, I, I, some sort of religious, I'm not real familiar with exactly what it is, but it's a religious colony up in uh, what, central Alberta. And they just, they took us around. This is how Jim operates. <laughs> I've been traveling with him for a long time. I know how this guy works, but I always fall into it. But anyway, the, the, these guys, beautiful farm. They were a, one of our farm, best farmers. We awarded them a one of our best farms of the year a few years ago. But they just didn't want to be part of it because they felt that it wasn't right to set a set price. They, they, I think it had something to do with, like, actually religious reasons. So we were unfortunately not able to bring them on board. But we did find six other farmers who were really happy to, un, to know what they were going to make every year, year in, year out, so they could focus on being better farmers. They didn't have to worry about the ups and downs and trying to time the market and sit in the coffee shop and, the news, and looking at newspapers and deciding what's, you know, when to buy, when to sell. And so these guys, we, they decided to dedicate a, a portion of their crop. It's, uh, you know, on a, on a big farm like that, you don't grow entirely, you know, you don't grow all barley, you don't grow all cannoli, you, you, you kind of divide it up each year and rotate it. And so anyway, and of that barley portion, they would do only a portion because it was a new thing, it was a new idea, kind of, no one's ever heard of this before where you actually have a set price for barley. And so they went with it and they, they trusted it. I think we convinced them that it was the right, you know, it, was a, it was worth trying. I mean, they knew what they're going to make each year and they were happy with the price. And it did work, like Ron said, it worked in favor for them for the first few years. But that, and that's important because in a couple of years, it's going to turn the other way around. The market's going to be a lot higher than what they're, they're getting paid, and we, but they're going to stick on it too. But just so that everybody can worry about making good beer, growing good barley, and that's the whole nature of the, of the, of the program. And it was, um, so it's, it's working. And you know, and these guys, we had a meeting, we meet every year, a couple times we have a recap after harvest, make sure everybody's happy. And we also, we do tweak the price a little bit based on the price of fuel or fertilizer, which a lot of this is based on oil prices. But uh, anyway, so we meet every year. And this year, um, these, these farmers presented Lagunias with a beautiful giant metal uh, plaque. They're always doing something, something kind of fun to show their appreciation. And they actually had a, one of the farmers stand up and start talking about how much this new program has meant to them and his family for the last few years. And he started crying. I mean, this is, a, you know, this, is, it, this is touching them to the point where they're so thankful to have something like this. It was, it's truly, it's, it's, it's totally something they've never seen before. And I think it just goes to show how important what Lagunitas has done 
to change things in the way this is this being done, the farming is being done up there. And these guys are loving it. They're growing better barley. Lagunitas is benefiting. Everybody's happy. And so, but anyway, the, the way the name Chinook Arch is kind of a fun deal. We were out in front of one of our farms, Hilton, uh, Hilton Ventures, a 10,000 acre farm, central Alberta. And we were freezing our asses off. We were all standing in a circle outside the barn talking about, you know, how many acres can we do and how's, you know, what do you think the price needs to be and all this stuff. And finally, we're just like, we couldn't take it anymore. It was so freezing cold. So we thought, well, we should probably go inside and drink beer. So that's what we did. We went inside the barn, had a couple beers, had a great time, talked, finished out all the details of what we thought was going to make a nice program. And then we went outside, and it was, it was warm all of a sudden. It was like warm and half sunny. There was a beautiful, the sky opened up. You could see the, the, the Canadian Rockies in the distance, a beautiful sunny sky, still some clouds, but it was like a big line. And Leon, who is one of my, truly one of my favorite guys in the industry, it says in his characteristic way, he's like, what is this? What's going on here? And they're like, oh, that's, it's a weather phenomenon called the Chinook Arch. It's kind of like the Alberta Clipper or one of these things. So that's how it all got started. We were on the farm, and uh, the Chinook Arch name came to pass because of that experience. So it was, it was pretty cosmic. I mean, we all, we had a great time. But, but basically, you know, it, 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 we, we, because of the growth that Lagunitas has had, we'd had to bring more farmers on. We're now, like Ron said, up to about 15 or so. And uh, it's, it, you know, we have guys who want to join, the, join it, but, you know, we, right at this point, we don't have a whole lot of other brewers who are interested in taking part in it for whatever reason, but Lagunese is, is fully committed, and we're, we're thrilled to work with them on that. And the farmers, I can tell you, are, are thrilled. So, I don't know, that's one little story. <laughs> All right. Oh, there's a lot more to go, Mark. Thank you very much, Mark. That's awesome. Yeah, you know, it's uh, there will be more brewers joining this program, I guarantee you, because we're, we're just, Leon invented it in a way that, that just came out of nowhere. We're inviting other brewers to be part of it. There's more barley farmers that want to be part of it. And this is the future of craft brewing in the United States. It's like making these partnerships and making sure that we can get the high-quality stuff that we need as a as a community of brewers to make this happen so it's it's pretty cool so uh thanks to mark and rar malting and those guys for making it happen you know when when you think about ingredients in beer we're, we've got a few everybody liking the beer so far or anything suck this one kind of sucks oh, oh no wait it doesn't suck it's uh tony wanted to name a beer lagunitas sucks about 18 years ago and uh, he saw a bumper sticker on the back of somebody's car that said, Primus sucks. Who knows Primus? Primus sucks has been their slogan for a long time. He's like, that is so badass. We got to make a beer called Lagunitas sucks. Well, at the time, we had a little bit of issue with our filter kind of harvesting some yeast of ours that it would dose into the beers, and our shelf life was not as good as it should have been, you know, three or four months into the shelf on a warm shelf. The beer wasn't that good, you know, back in the late 90s. It was, I was driving around all over picking up old beer and, you know. So Tony comes in, he's like, we got to make a beer called Lagunitas Sucks. I said, can we please wait until we don't? <laughs> you know, it's like, I mean, when the beer really sucks, you don't want to, it's not an affirmation, it's supposed to be a joke. So where did it Yes, yes. So uh, that, that is where the name came from. So, you know, 18 years go by, we realized that we're out of capacity. We can't make enough beer. We're shorting orders. And it's before we got Chicago online. And brown sugar is our winter seasonal. Anybody ever had that before? Brown sugar? No? It's a 9.9% just thump in the temple. <laughs> But it's, it's delicious beer. But, uh, but we, we, it takes three times as long to make as our other beers. So Tony was like, you know, it's wintertime, you know, brown sugar, old gnarly wine, hairy eyeball, all these beers that take three times as long to make, we, we've got to put those on the back burner. We're not going to be able to make them this year. So we're going to make a seasonal, and, and we're going to tell everybody that we're sorry we can't make these beers that you see every year. And uh, Lagunitas sucks. Sorry about that. <laughs> so... Unfortunately, Lagunitas Sucks was our best-selling seasonal ever. It was like, ah, yeah, trying to take a little pressure off. That's why I used to, like, when we'd run out of beer in May and June, I'd, I'd slide Imperial Stout into the seasonal rotation because the seasonal would just go, boo. It's like nobody's drinking Imperial Stout in July. 
but, but we held that shelf space. We were able to make more IPA as a result and all that. But, um, but when, when you think about the ingredients and, and what's going on with them, the new hop varieties that are being developed, I don't know if you're familiar with how hops are developed, but uh, they're, they're heterozygous plants. So if you breed a male and a female and get 100 seeds out of that female, you're going to get 100 different hop varieties. You, so it's, it's kind of like apples or grapes or whatever. It's like you got to splice into rootstock. So the hop breeding element of it is, is really fascinating because you see these hops come out like Equinox was just named Equinox, right? Those seeds were planted 11 years ago, you know, before they developed it out to where they knew they had something that was going to be a viable hop crop. So the, the same thing with barley. Uh, Mark was just telling me earlier, they're, they're really into these, um, these heirloom barley varieties that are, that, that are really interesting. And, uh, you know, that's, that's like, that's the future of how we're going to innovate. You know, these new hop varieties is innovation. It's what everybody around the world wants now. It's uh, the new malt varieties are just starting to kind of become a thing. So, so I was going to ask, uh, ask a couple of questions of these guys on how they go about developing new varieties of things. And maybe I'll start with Mark on the heirloom malt. So can you say a few things about that? Or, or should we do questions? They're recorded. Yeah, these, the, the hop varieties you've got in the bags around, Jim sent down and uh, it's hard to fly with this stuff, man. TSA just thinks you're smuggling weed. It's really hard. <laughs> but <laughs> so we we send it UPS, and then UPS thinks you're shipping weed, but then they open it up and they realize you're not. So. Well, Mark, Mark works for a company that, that works with growers of barley and hops and yeast and, and I don't think weed, huh? No? Yeah, no. no maybe in Denver. But, uh, but there... One of our farmers always looking for a new, a new crop, right? So uh, he had, last year, he had 80 acres of marijuana growing, but it was not, it was, uh, not medicinal. It was, it was uh, industrial marijuana, the, the hemp, I guess, right? And it was just coming to, uh, to fruition here. And this is one of the perils of being a farmer. Hail wiped out in entire 100% of the crop, 80 acres of, of hemp. So, but it, was, it made for some pretty good pictures because we get a hailstorm. Hailstorm, yeah. And I, have a, there's a, I don't know if you'll see it. At some point on here, I have a picture of a barn uh, that was hit by hail. If you happen to see all the siding is missing, it, it literally was like a like a sandblaster up there in, in the in the plants, and that's Leon right there driving the uh, driving the combine. So the guy that we're talking about, right there he is with the thumbs up. That's that's the man. So <laughs> great great introduction there. How 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 can you not talk about hops and Lagunitas and cannabis in the same sentence? So so first of all, um, hops Cannabisaceae humulus lupus. They are in the same family as marijuana. No, you can't cross them, and I wouldn't recommend you smoke them. But, and us being from the state of Washington, especially in the city of Moxie, where everything is legal, including growing, processing, and smoking, and selling. Just saying. What were you just saying there, Jim? <laughs> Hop farmers and, uh, and barley growers are not mutually inclusive, and it generally has to do with the geographic areas, specifically with hops. If you look at hops on the, anywhere in the world where they grow, north or south um, of, the parallel, uh, of the equator, they're always at about the 45th parallel. It has to do with the heat unit days, along with having male and female plants. They are also day length sensitive. So if you're not close to the 45th parallel, um, as hops grow, they are in a vegetative mode where they grow tall binds and all kinds of vegetative matter to support the reproductive mode, which only happens after the summer solstice when we start getting a shorter day length, which tells the plant to go into reproductive mode to produce the cones or the strobiles, 
which is the only portion of the plant that we use to make beer. And also keep in mind that when we're producing these hop cones, there is no secondary market. Like malt, we can do, they can do feed, they can do um, animal um, feed, or they can do malting barley. Hops have one destination, and that's for brewing. In hops, we do not, because hops are a perennial, so we, we plant them year one, and, and, and we're in Washington State, so generally speaking, in year one, we get 85% of what the total expected yield is. Some places like Oregon and Idaho, um, and sometimes in, in Oregon, they don't uh, string that at all for the first year, so there's zero results. Idaho, um, they're doing a lot better. They probably get 65, 75, but until you get 100% of your expected yield, other than Washington, it's more than two years. Yeah, hops are um, hops are a crop that uh, that grows from rhizomes. So they they cut them back when they harvest. They cut the hops off at the base and clip them at the top where they're running up these string trellises and harvest the vines in. And then the the, the rhizomes, the the rootstock basically goes dormant for the winter and then comes back up in the spring. So that's the hard part about about spreading out a hop crop is that you've got to basically break the rhizomes out and break that rootstock out to spread it out. You're not taking, you're not reseeding, you're breaking rootstock out. So it takes a long time to build out a lot of acreage. So uh, with, with barley, they do rotate the crops because it's, it's just like any other crop. If it's corn or canola or rye or barley, you grow that same crop on the on that acreage year after year, and you're going to deplete the nutrients that are required. So you rotate the crops around. That's you know that's a, uh, it's a it's a way different thing. And and Mark was like I said, he was saying earlier. There's these heirloom barley varieties that are going to become pretty interesting in the brewing world. So uh, you want to say a few words about that? Actually, it's a lot going on now. Just uh, pretty like current news. Uh, but one of our one of our newest uh, heirlooms that we're looking at newest heirloom, but it's one of our actually oldest heirlooms. It's from 1820. Is a variety called uh, Chevalier. It's kind of an interesting story. It's a it's uh, discovered in England uh, back in the 1820s. Like I said, kind of Victorian era actually, and by uh, a, a gentleman by the name of Reverend John Chevalier. And so you, you know here is a reverend breeding plants. So you kind of wonder what's what's that all about. Well, you know, it should have been a doctor or something like this. But, you know, you think about back in those days, uh, it was a time when a lot of people were either, you know, in service to, to someone's kind of serfdom type of thing or, or uh, you know, working or maritime or some sort of trade. And really the, the clergy had a fair amount of time to, to dabble in these sorts of things. I mean, sure, they had the odd funeral and they had maybe service every Sunday to, to, to work around, but they had a lot of free time. And this guy, uh, uh, Reverend Chevalier, was walking down the street uh, one of his neighbors, who was a, a, a farmer who did work in the fields, happened to have found, and this particular farmer found some seed, some, some, some barley that looked very nice. So he took a handful or two, planted it in his own garden, and then Reverend Chevalier happened to be walking by and noticed how handsome this, this barley was. It was very tall and big kernels, and it looked like it was something, you know, something very special. So he grabbed some, they started uh, growing it and started uh, propagating it. Actually, and before long, it ended up being serving the most of the, uh, the, the UK brewers up and down the, up and down the, the, the country. And uh, actually, it ended up being probably the prominent barley variety up until close to World War II. Uh, and typically, barley varieties, like, uh, they're, they're, they're rotated, uh, not rotated, but changed up. Like, uh, for instance, even wheat, uh, every so, probably about every three or four years, every five years, there's a new wheat variety that comes out because it's getting better yield for the farmers or it's more disease resistant or something like that. Barley takes a little longer typically because brewers don't like to switch things up. They start using a variety like, like Metcalf or like Copeland and Copeland's been around for, for 15 years, Metcalf probably 20 years or so. They, they, they really want to just kind of keep with that same thing. But there, again, there is a tendency to want to change it too just to kind of improve yield or improve disease resistance. And so so when you have something like a, a Chevalier that was, that's, you know, 100 and whatever years old, almost, almost 200 years old, I guess, at this point, it's, it's pretty unique, but it had such tremendous flavor. Uh, brewers love it. And when you have these barley varieties like this, like Maris Otter, which is now 50 years old, uh, and they have very, very pronounced flavors, 
that are just not seen in, in current and modern varieties. And so brewers really enjoy brewing with them. I know when I brewed with Maris Otter, it was one of these uh, varieties that was just, it was beautiful in the brew house. It just, it, it tended to float, so you never got the stuck runoff. I don't know how, how familiar everyone is here with brewing, but it was beautiful to work with. It had a wonderful flavor. And these beers were really kind of part of the reason why on the English brewing tradition is such, uh, they have so many of these light, wonderful light beers like, uh, like bitters and uh, milds and things like that that have such great flavor because the malt has just had such a wonderful flavor profile. And you wouldn't be able to do that with uh, some of these current varieties. And so these heirloom varieties, it's kind of the new, you know, what's old is new again, I guess. I mean, it's, this is some of the innovations actually coming out of heirloom, heirloom seeds. And it's kind of, you know, so this with Chevalier, uh, it was kind of rescued from a, from a seed bank not, not that long ago. It was grown up, uh, probably a handful of seeds, grew a, a small plot of, of ground, uh, got up to a quarter acre, got up to a half acre, a couple, uh, couple more years. And hopefully by, by this, by, we, have a, we have a few tons to work with this year, and hopefully in a few years we're going to have a couple hundred tons. And uh, we'll see more and more uh, experimentation with these heirloom varieties. But Maris Otter, again, is, is one that's been around since the since the 50s, and that has a pretty interesting story too. I don't, do we have time to go into that one? Real, can I make it real quick? I love, I love this story, and I don't even know if this is true, but I, I think it's a great story, so don't tell this to anybody else because it might not be true. <laughs> but, uh, it, no, it's true. But, um, so Maris Otter um, is, a, is a variety that was started probably in about the 1960s. There was a, a breeding, a British breeding, uh, Institute was uh, part of the Cambridge University, and they were on Maris Street in uh, in town there. So they named a lot of their new grain varieties Maris. So like Mar uh, Maris Otter was was the barley, and then they they realized, well, wait, we should probably if we have a new grain, it should probably be named after the first letter of what it is. So they said, okay, well, the next one's going to be called Maris Badger. So somewhere out there is Maris Badger, and then they also have a wheat variety called Maris Widgeon. And I, I don't know if anybody's seen that. Widgeon, it's, I think it's a kind of bird or something. And then there's, a, yeah, so there's these new varieties that are still, I've, I've read about, but I haven't seen them yet. So it's, hopefully there's going to be a couple even more new heirloom varieties released, whether it's wheat or Maris Badger would be kind of fun to play with. So, But Maris Otter was kind of misnamed. It, it should have been an oat, I think, right? But it's a, it's a barley. <laughs> don't you love that shit? I mean, this, this kind of... These guys, these guys carry this passion every day, all day. It's what they do, you know? It's just, when you think about where craft beer comes from, it comes from these guys that care so much to, to make sure that we've got what we need to make beer. And, you know, 3,700 breweries in the country now, we all need our stuff. And who do you turn to? You're not gonna turn to the big boys, you know? I mean, we need, we need guys like this in the game that, that, that let us do what we do. So it's a, it's a pleasure to, to work with them. And you know, you're seeing you know, shots of what they do up here, so I hope you're, hope you're enjoying the little slideshow. Um, at any, you know, we've we got a few more minutes. Anybody have questions for either of these guys? Or, you know, I'd like to talk a little bit just real quick about the beers. Um, we started with IPA, right? It's, it's mostly malted barley. It's got some caramel malt in it, mainly pale malt. We put a little bit of malted white wheat in it. Cascade and Centennial hops are kind of the deal, you know, and that's what was available to us in 95. And we've stuck to that recipe and we've just kind of stuck to our, our flagship gun. Um, but as time's gone on, you know, uh, Tony McGee is the owner of the brewery. He was the brewmaster forever. Uh, he wrote every recipe for the first 15 years, and we hired a, a brilliant young hippie named Jeremy Marshall that uh, you guys know, <laughs> right? Am I right? Is that, how, how would you describe him better? Brilliant young hippie? Creative young hippie. But, uh, but he's just, he is so heady about everything and about his palate is so pure and he's such a brilliant scientist. He could have been a brain surgeon, he could have been a nuclear physicist, he could have done anything he wanted, but he wanted to make beer. And we got so lucky to get him right out of UC Davis, and he's part of the family deep to the core now. And, and uh, he's taken over the title of brewmaster from Tony, and he's doing all the research on the new hop varieties and all the, you know, the new recipes. His first recipe was Imperial Red. I don't know if anybody's had that, but he, he just dosed it heavy with Amarillo hops. He was like, 
fuck yeah, here it is. You know, and it was bracingly sort of hoppy, but it was nice beer. But he's, he's continued to, to do research, and as you go through these beers, IPA is, is the recipe that Tony gave him, and he's, he's modified it a little in the process with our filtration and our, our fermentation time and temperatures and things and dry hopping time. He's tweaked it just a little, but it's pretty much the same beer it was in 95. Lagunitas sucks. We call it a cereal medley. It's got, uh, it's got malted barley, malted wheat, oats, and rye, so it's a very complex sort of malt base. Uh, it's, a, it's a delicate little beer at 7.8 or whatever it is, but, uh, but if, if, you, if you note the kind of a, a lighter bodied beer, it's, it's tricky to get that complexity in the malt flavors, and I think Jeremy kind of nailed it on that one. It's dosed pretty heavy with a lot of dry hopping. We do a lot, a lot of dry hopping. So sucks kind of followed in that. Why the splatter? It's not a blood splatter. It's, a, it's, it's bird shit. Started out as bird shit. Tony took a picture of a bird that crapped on his car on his way to work one morning. And, and, and I, I see his new 22-ounce case packaging, and it's got this splotch on it, but it's red. And uh, I was like, what's the splotch? He goes, well, it's bird shit at 20 miles an hour. And I was like, huh. <laughs> I said, can you send me that artwork? He said, yeah. I said, he said, what do you want to do with it? I said, everything. Because <laughs> I do all the marketing and all, you know. I was like, I want to put that on everything, man. It's our swoosh. Nike's got nothing on a splotch, man. I'll tell you what, the swoosh is dead. But... Uh, but anyway, Sucks is, um, it, it, I told the story about how it came up earlier, but uh, um, that, that's become a year-round beer now because we like it so much. We just love to drink it at the brewery, and we pretty make, you know, historically we, we, we make beer we want to drink. We make beer, we watch the trends at the brewery. Who, for the case of the week, who's getting what? For the taproom employee beers, who's getting what? And we follow our own palates in a large way. So Sucks was... Sucks had to come into the fold. Uh, hop Stupid, we make with a product uh, that's a hop extract. Super critical CO2 extraction, right? Yeah. So it's super critical extraction where they, they take hops, they put them in a chamber, they fill it with liquid CO2 and pressurize it. And the crystallization of the oils in the hops makes them fall off of the plant material and they run off the liquid CO2, they evaporate the CO2, and you get this gooey stuff that's just pure hop extract. And uh, you know, hop extracts used to be kind of a bad thing because they were extracted with butane or methane or I don't know what the propane, you know, I don't know. But, uh, but the CO2 extraction really works, and there's a whole lot of breweries uh, that are doing it, and most of them don't talk about it. We don't mind because we know that it's a good thing. When you put a lot of hops in your upfront addition to make that bittering part of your beer, if you load it up with hops as much as we want to put in Hop Stupid and we'd use hop pellets, we'd also boil out that plant material. You get chlorophyll, you get these herbaceous sort of flavors, you get burnt broccoli, you get these things that are acrid, but they're not, they, they seem bitter, but it's not hop bitterness. And, um, and it's just an unpleasant flavor. So. You know, a lot of brewers, I mean, from Pliny to Moylan's to Firestone, I mean, everybody's, like, triple hop beers, are all, we're all using extract. So if, if you ask them, hopefully they tell you the truth, but it's cool stuff. And Hop Stupid is all about that because we want it to have this super high sort of hop aroma and flavor that comes from the dry hopping, but we don't want it to linger with a lot of acrid sort of bitterness. We want it to finish clean, little little malty sweetness, after you get this huge, like, punch in the head of hops, you know, <laughs> like that. It has nothing to do with alcohol. No, it's just, it's just the, the, the hop flavor. The hops don't create any alcohol. That all comes from the malt. So it's, a, you know, we, we make it, it's about an 8% beer, but it's... A, but we use a lower mash temperature, so you don't really get a lot of sweetness out of it. It's just, it's a nice pale base that really leaves just a big old hop bomb in your mouth without knocking you out. So, uh, yes, sir.
They don't. They don't. They, that's what they at RAR malting. I'll let Mark speak to that a little bit. They they all you know they used to all ship their malt through whatever processors were out there. Um, uh, it's all it's all up in Canada. Oh, sorry. Oh, geez, he cut me off the hook. Uh, in Minnesota, actually, and at this point, because of the growth in the industry and the the partnerships that we have, we are adding to it uh, another 70,000 metric ton increase, and that will make it the single largest malt house in the world. But uh, you know, so but it's in uh, Shakopee, Minnesota. Yeah. So yeah, that's it's actually kind of an interesting story. I have a, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't go on, but uh, we have you know, like I said, our, and this is one this is one we don't talk about too much. So this one doesn't leave the room, and we got to turn turn the recorder off, if you would. But uh, so originally, when RAR started back in the 1840s, uh, William RAR was was the founder of the company, and it it actually started off as a brewery, and so they were brewing beer, but they also back in the day they they malted beer they malted barley to feed the breweries. So a lot of breweries had malt houses as well. And after a while, the, uh, uh, the, the malting capacity out, outstripped the, 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 the brewing capacity, I guess, so they kind of ended up becoming more of a, a brewery or a malt, a malt house than a, than a brewery. But um, at that time, <laughs> are we allowed to say this? All right. Well, the the original owner of Raw Malting Company, and this is talking about giving your heart and soul to the company. The original owner of uh, RAR Malting Company, William RAR, uh, had an unfortunate, what they call an industrial accident, where he fell into the brew kettle, and that's how he met his demise. So thankfully he had sons who were able to take over the business, and to this day, Willie RAR, who's our, the president of the company, is a wonderful man to work with. Yeah, it's a, yeah. so it's, 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 you know, but this is, a, it's the truth. It's part of the history of, of it's, you know, it's, a, it's not this, it can be a dangerous business, but people give, it's a, it's a passion, and people are in it because they love it, and uh, yeah, so that's, that's, we don't talk about that one much, but. Uh. So, uh, so a skeleton walks into a bar. The skeleton, right? It's a skeleton. He walks into a bar. He says, bartender, give me a beer and a mop. Nothing? Seriously? Beer and a mop. He's going to drink the beer. It's going to go all over the floor. He's very polite. No, I'm just trying to get off of the, you know, the horrible story that Mark decided to tell us right at the end. But um, anybody else have any other questions at all that we can, can answer for you? We're kind of on the winding down point of this thing. Well, thank you all for coming out and supporting Saver and the Brewers Association. And thanks for coming to, to listen to us talk about uh, stuff. Thank you for listening to this recording from Saver 2015, brought to you by the Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio. You can find the rest of the salons from Saver 2015, as well as all of the salons from previous years of Saver, at craftbeerradio.com slash saver or on craftbeer.com. Craft Beer Radio is a weekly beer podcast that you can listen to on iTunes or from our website at craftbeerradio.com.